So faith, you know, we hear about faith all the time, and I think a lot of people are confused as to what faith is. And yet we know it's the fundamental necessity of every child of God, every Christian, every, we call ourselves believers because we have faith. We know according to Hebrews eleven six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So unless you have faith, you can't do anything that pleases or blesses or ministers to God. According to Mark 6, verses 5 through 6, without faith, there can be no mighty work of God. God can't work like he wants to unless faith is exercised. In Ephesians 2, 8, we're told that we are saved through faith. In Hebrews 11, we're told that it's faith that carries out great exploits. In Luke chapter 22, When Jesus was speaking to Peter, he said, Peter, you're about to go through the worst night of your life. Satan has asked for you by name, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. It's faith that will persevere. It is faith that will carry you through the hardest circumstances of life. And not only will faith carry you through, but Jesus went on to say to Peter, and when you have come through, strengthen your brethren. So faith will not only carry you through, but as it carries you through, it will strengthen you so that you can strengthen and minister to others. And yet, as I said, there's all these misconceptions about faith. Some people think that faith is the power to believe. I believe, you know, and they think that I'm going to muster this up. I'm going to you know, conjure this thing in myself as if it's just this positive energy force that I channel. It's not faith. Some people think that faith is wishful hoping, you know, fingers crossed. I hope, I hope, I hope I can do both. But, you know, we we just think, oh, if I can just hope, like a divine optimism, that's not faith. Some people think it's faith in faith. You know, they, they have the faith in the power to believe. But faith has an object and an objective. And the object of faith is God himself. It is who he is, the biblical revelation about God. It is what he has done according to the scriptures. Faith also has an objective, and it's to believe, but it's what it believes. Faith believes God's word, God's promises, and God's work through Jesus Christ. Faith believes that God sent his only begotten son because he so loved the world. Faith believes that that only begotten son died for all the misdeeds and bad things that we have done. But faith also believes that Jesus was so righteous, so good, that he rose again on the third day to prove that the sacrifice to God was acceptable and to prove that our sins are forgiven that God loves us, that all the promises of God are true through Jesus Christ. That's the objective of faith. Faith obeys God. According to James 2.22, faith is evidenced or it's seen through our obedience to God. And faith bears fruit. It's faith. It's believing in God And all that he has promised that bears the fruit. I was at a retreat one time. And it was during an afterglow. 
And the woman, I, I don't know how to say this, except for that she was up the front and she's like, which one of you lacks faith? Like, no, not me. I've got enough faith. I, I was afraid to stand up. I didn't, you know, all of a sudden I was ashamed that I lack faith. But then I thought, wait a second, I do lack faith. I'm one of those people, if they're passing out something, I'm going to stand in line, even if I'm not quite sure what's being passed out. I just you know, want to know. I have a friend, we were on a, um, the cruise last year, and they gave all these like free certificates in one of the islands we stopped at. And she pulls out every free certificate. She's like, get this one, get this one. This is for a free, you know, a free pearl. This is for a free necklace. And she's pulling out all these free things. I'm like, don't we have to ha- buy something? She goes, no, they put it here, we're going. So I just followed her and they give her the necklace. And then I just stood behind her and got the necklace too. I got all these free things. <laughs> I remember bringing them home. And my kids were like, what are we supposed to do with them? I go, I don't know, but they're yours. I got them free. You know, but if there's an opportunity for more faith, who wants to, you know, not get in that line? So nobody was standing except for like two very brave women. Like, okay, I'll admit it, I need faith. And everybody else was sitting down. And I was thinking, you know what? I need faith. I'm going through a tremendous storm and I need faith. So I stood up and I could hear, you know, this is the problem with being Chuck Smith's daughter. You hear, Cheryl Broderson is standing up. She needs faith. You know, like, what's her problem? You know, and I could hear. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go, you guys are supposed to have your eyes closed. (laughs) But you know what? Then then I started thinking, wait a second. I started looking around the room because now my eyes are open. And I'm thinking, wait, I know that lady needs faith. I know her personally, and I know she's got a prodigal. She needs faith. I almost went over there and go, stand up. I know you. You know, and then I, I saw a couple other people, and you know, I know their problems. They told me. And they needed to be standing up because I knew exactly what they needed, just what Peter needed, just what Jesus prayed that Peter would have. They needed faith that would not fail. So I did, I started thinking, WWKD, what would K do? Or WWMK, what would Mama K do? And I thought, you know what? She would storm the platform and she would tell them that everyone needed faith. So I didn't channel it, but it came upon me. The spirit of K, she is my mother. It is in the blood. And I just went up to the front and I said, wait a second. I know I don't have enough faith and I know you don't either. So why are we, why are we waiting? Why are we coming short? Who's got prodigals? that they need more faith to believe that God is is going to save those prodigals. Who's got financial trials that they need to believe that God is going to give them the finances to get through? Who's got physical ailments? Who's got, and pretty soon I got that whole room standing for faith. Because isn't it true? Don't we all need more faith? Isn't that part of our problem? Can't we relate to that father who said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief? Is that true? All right, if you need faith right now, I want you to stand up. Let's stand up. Let's stand up. Okay, now let's do it. Lord, here we are and we're being honest. We're absolutely being honest, Lord. You know the situation that we need more faith. Lord, you know the storm and the present circumstances we're in. And you know how we need to believe in you and to stand on your promises. Lord, we're going to admit our weakness because we're women. 
And we have weakness, Lord, and we want to believe more than we've ever believed. We want to see all your promises come through. We want to see the God of impossibilities make the impossible possible. Lord, we want to see the heavens opened. Lord, we want to feel your angels speaking to us and standing by us through the night. Lord, we want to know your word. We want to know that we must, we must appear in Rome. God, we want all these things, and we know that they are ours as we just simply believe. So God, bless our belief and help our unbelief, Lord. And we give you our unbelief in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So I can actually turn the page because I didn't plan on praying, but I figured we might as well. It's an opportunity. We all need faith. We need faith for salvation, for perseverance, for victory, for miracles. And how do we come by that faith? How do we get to that faith? I remember being in England and it was time to drive. And I was holding off on driving. I was scared to drive. They drive on the wrong side of the road. And they drive in narrow lanes. And they have all these rules. And their signs are different. Their rules are different. You know, like... We have like these dotted lines. They've got like zigzags. What is that supposed to mean? And then I took driving lessons and, you know, he was cockney. So it was like, and I was like, I had no idea what he was saying. I needed someone in the car with the gift of interpretation. But it was just, you know, there I was. And so I was, I was waiting to drive. And we picked up this couple, adorable English couple. And they were very, very Pentecostal. And so she was like, Cheryl are you driving yet? And I said, no, I'm waiting for an anointing. I thought she would like that, you know, being Pentecostal, you know, they went the. So I thought, this is a good answer. And she's like, have you ever thought of faith? Just getting in the car and driving. And it's like, great, I'm so convicted. So the next day I got in the car and I drove right into a post. It was great. <laughs> but faith comes First, by hearing the word of God. That's how it's implanted in us. It tells us in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So it starts, this inception of faith is when we hear the word of God. Then faith is activated by our obedience to God's word. But it's in the storms, the storms of life, that faith is forged, fortified, and felt. It's in the storms. So what is a storm? What is this term? I want to say nebulous because there's nebulous clouds too. Kind of seemed punny. But during these times when we lose all control, and that's hard for women. We love control. We want to control the driver of the car, especially when it's not us. We love control. And it's these times when we lose all control, where we don't know where we are, We're not sure about the future. We can't see anything. Those are the storms of life, and we all go through storms where the future is unclear, where we cannot navigate, where it seems like everything is against us, where going forward seems almost impossible, and we've lost all control. That's what I call a storm. But it's in these types of situations and these circumstances that faith is forged, fortified, and felt. Why is it that faith 
is for most people the last resort, isn't it? We're gonna try, we're gonna do everything in our power before we'll try faith. I think of the woman in Mark chapter five who had that issue for 12 years. For 12 long years, she tried everything but Jesus, everything. We're told that she went to every doctor, that she tried every remedy, that she tried all these philosophies, methodologies. And finally, when she got no better, but everything grew worse, she decided to seek out Jesus. And when she sought out Jesus and she reached out in faith, she was made whole. I think it's so fascinating that Jesus and that huge throng of people said, who touched me? that her touch was so different than every other touch. Peter said, Lord, everyone's pressing in on you. What do you mean, who touched me? But Jesus knows the touch of faith. The person that reaches out to him and says, you're my hope. You're my last hope. You're my only hope. And it's the touch of faith that Jesus stops for. It's the touch of faith that Jesus feels that he responds to. And it was this touch of faith, this last resort. I love how the Lord doesn't go, forget it, I'm your last resort. You should have tried me first. You should have tried me third. You know, he doesn't go, why am I always last? I'm the baby of the family. That's kind of our mantra. Why am I the last? But Jesus didn't say, why am I your last resort? He's like, finally, you got here. And now you're healed. Daughter, be healed. Your faith has made you whole. It's that touch of faith because you believed in me, because I became the object. And touching me became the objective of your faith. You are whole. In Luke chapter 8, the disciples are in one of those famous Galilean storms. And we're told that when they had lost all hope, they woke up Jesus and Jesus rebuked the wind and the seas. But then he looked at the disciples and he said, where is your faith? I think that's such a great question because whenever I'm afraid and I think, you know, I'm going down with the ship, I have to re-examine what is it I place my faith in? Because we place our faith in so many things but Jesus. I think about how every time I get into an airplane, I place my faith in mechanics, men who built the airplane, designers. I'm like, why am I supposed to believe these engines work and can float me in the air? Tell me again. I place my faith in the pilot and then in the autopilot when they're eating and taking a break and greeting people on the plane. It's like, shouldn't you be up in the front? (laughs) You know, but where is your faith? And I I thought about those disciples on the Sea of Galilee. What was their faith? Perhaps it was in their experience. We're fishermen. This is what we do. We handle storms. But they lost faith in even their experience. This storm was not like anything they had been through before. They had faith maybe in each other. Like if we stay together, if we're all together now in this company with each other, faith in friends, faith in coworkers, we can make it through. But they begin to lose faith in each other. Maybe 
It was in the boat. This is such a great boat. It's weathered so many storms. Certainly, it will take us through this storm too. But we're told that the boat began to take on water and was filling quickly. Perhaps they had faith in the storm. You know, sometimes we have more faith in what's against us than the God that's for us. Isn't that true? We have more faith that the waves are going to take us down than that God is going to hold us up. So perhaps that was what was going on with these disciples. They had more faith in the storm. This is it. We're going down. Perhaps they had faith in the Galilee. We've, you know, this, this sea, this lake has been our friend. It's fed us. It's sustained us before. Storms never last this long. It's going to calm down, but it didn't. And so they lost faith in the Galilee. Perhaps it was in the shore. If we can just make it to shore. And we're told that they couldn't see the shore. The storm was so strong in that Galilee. But Jesus says to these disciples, where is your faith? Where should their faith have been? One, in Jesus. He's in the boat. Two, in the fact that Jesus says, let us go over to the other side. In the word and the promise of Jesus. When the storms come, we have to bring our faith back. Back to the Lord himself and to his promises. In Acts chapter 27, these seasoned sailors that are on the Mediterranean Sea, they have no confidence at all in the word of God through Paul, the prisoner, the Christian. It's like, oh yeah, that guy's talking again. I hear noise. Kind of like men when women are lecturing. I hear noise. (laughs) Paul says to them, I perceive, in verse 10, that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also our lives. We're in peril. Paul had experience on the sea. In 2 Corinthians 11, 25, and 26, he tells the believers in Corinth, three times I have been shipwrecked. Now, the epistle to the Corinthians was written um, somewhere between one and two years before this experience. So already in all those voyages that Paul had gone through, all those missionary endeavors, he had been shipwrecked. He even says, I was a night and a day out in the sea. I was just out there in the Mediterranean floating. So this is a man who knows shipwreck. He's been there. He also says that he experienced perils of the sea. So he had been through shipwreck. And so he's saying, I perceive this man of God, this prisoner of Jesus Christ is saying, I perceive, I can see what you're missing. And this is not going to go well. Though Paul was not a sailor, he was qualified to know and sense disaster. We're told that the centurion Julius listened more to the helmsman or the captain of the ship And then the owner of the ship, more than the word of God through Paul. In fact, we're told that the majority listened to the helmsman and the captain. That's where their faith was. Their faith was in the captain. He knows the sea. He knows his boat. He knows his crew. He survived other voyages and storms. He's made it through things like this. He has experience. Their faith was obviously in the owner of the ship. He doesn't want to risk or jeopardize the cargo or crew or his own ship, the loss of money. He wouldn't go on this voyage if it wasn't safe. So those on their ship put 
their faith in an experience in the ship rather than the word of God. But faith is not forged until God removes all the props we trust in. First, you have a tempestuous wind or a Euroclidon, verse 14. A Euroclidon was actually a typhoon at sea. It was stronger than just any storm. It's, it's a typhoon. They no longer had the covering of the island of Crete to block the wind. In fact, what we're told is that the wind came over the island and drove them out to sea. At this point, it would be dangerous to leave the sail up because it would capsize the ship. When we lived in England, we went down to Plymouth, and there's a ship there called the Mary Rose. And it was um, sailing off to fight with Spain. And Henry VIII was there on the, at Plymouth along with a great company of people as they were sailing, uh, as they were sending the soldiers off, they were waving to the ship. It got maybe 500 yards off the coast of England and this wind kicked up over um, just suddenly and capsized the Mary Rose and it went down and there were only five, five men that were saved. Um, Recently, um, 20 years ago, uh, Prince Charles dough for this ship and he helped arrange to bring it up to the surface and now it's preserved and you can see the Mary Rose in England. It's really interesting. But what I want to say is across the island of England, all of a sudden this wind came up and this whole ship was capsized and the people on shore watched it sink in front of their eyes and were helpless to save anyone on board. So we're told that these men On the Mediterranean, they had to let the sails down because it would be dangerous to leave the sail up in that kind of wind. And we're told they had to let the sail, I'm sorry, the ship drive itself. This was the way, this was their methodology of how they got through storms. We're told in verse 17 that they used these cables to secure the ship, that they were bringing these cables and tying them around the front of the ship to help the the, the prow of the ship stays strong as it kept being beaten um, by the waves. Plus, we're told that they were afraid that they were off the coast of Africa and they were going to run aground in the sands of Sirtis. They had no idea where they were. They were exceedingly tempest-tossed, thrown around back and forth in verse 18. We're told in verse 19 that they had to throw away all the ship's tackle, all the gear, all the things that would secure them, all that they used to make their destination. At this point, they're saying, we don't know where we're going to end up, but it's not Rome. So they throw all the tackle overboard. We're told that they couldn't see the stars at night. So there was no northern star to steer them by, according to verse 20. When I was in school, I had to memorize a poem by John Maysfield. Maybe you did too. That said, I must go down to the sea again, to the lonely sea and sky, and all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer by. They would use the northern star as navigation. They didn't have GPS in those days. They didn't have Siri. Siri, where am I? And so they would use the stars and they would navigate by the stars at night. 
And during the day, they would use the sun because the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. And that would tell them what direction to head in. But now they're in the middle of the Mediterranean. And for 14 days, 14 days, they couldn't see the sun and they couldn't see the stars. There was no way to navigate. They had no food. No doubt because they were tempest-tossed, they probably couldn't keep food down. So no one had eaten. It had been a long abstinence, which means that their strength was ebbing. Their tempers were rising. They had been running on pure adrenaline with no nourishment. They were spent. And it is when all the props are removed, when everything that we have previously trusted in, that we begin to call upon God. I read one time that Voltaire, the famous French atheist, was in a thunderstorm with lightning bolts just flashing all around him. And he fell to his knees and he cried out and said, Jesus, save me. This incredible atheist, even in the storm, cried out to God. It is during this time, according to verses 21 through 26, that Paul stands in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the sailors, in the midst of the ship. And this time the ship listens because they have nothing left but Paul's word from God to believe in. And this is when faith is forged. The seamen listen to Paul and the promise of God. God's word is the only word that offers hope and comfort and promise in the storm. God's word is the only word that can stand in the midst of the storm and say, I now urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. God's word is the only word of promise. Do not be afraid, Paul. For you must be brought before Caesar. You're going to get where you need to go. This is the only word of promise. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. We're told in verse 29 that all of the ship began to pray. There is nothing like a storm. Nothing like losing control of having all other hopes dashed that will get men and women to pray. The seamen are now not only willing to listen to Paul's word, but to also follow his directives. The prisoner of Christ is now in command of the ship. In verse 31, Paul stops the sailors from escaping through the skiff. And Paul tells his shipmates to take some nourishment. Paul takes the bread that's on board and he gives thanks to God for it in the presence of them all. And then he breaks the bread for all to eat. And everyone on board follows Paul's example. And they eat the bread. And they take the nourishment. You see, they're not only encouraged by Paul's word. They're not only holding on to the word of God through Paul. But now they're following Paul's faith. Faith is just as contagious as fear. People are drawn to faith in storms. That's the word they want to hear. During that whole storm of Y2K, remember that? It was 14 years ago. We were told that every computer system in the world was going to go down. 
And I remember listening to John Corson preaching at that time. And he said, so what? We still have Jesus. So what? Maybe we'll have to band together. Maybe we'll have to feed each other. Maybe we'll have to minister sacrifice. But so what? We've got Jesus. And I remember I was like, go, John, go. You know, it was, that's the right word. So what? We've got Jesus. You see, in the storms, it's only the word of faith that has the comfort, that has the hope. And this is when people begin to grab onto faith. Faith is forged. But faith is also fortified in the storms. There are those who come to faith by the storms, but there are also those who have faith. But that faith is strengthened through the storms. There's the misconception that in storms, faith is lost. We're told about the seed of faith or the gospel that goes in. And when persecution arises because of the gospel, the seed withers and dies. But that seed never had enough root in the first place. But a seed that is implanted will only be strengthened by the storms. They say that the sweetest apples are the apples that endure the greatest storms, the greatest wind, the greatest extremities, the greatest heat, and the greatest cold. It's in the storms that our faith is actually strengthened. Storms are the places where faith is tested, it's tried, it's purified, and it's glorified. Untested faith is absolutely worthless. Who wants faith that has never persevered through a storm? Have you ever gone through something and you, you try to tell somebody and they're like, oh, I don't relay. I just go to Disneyland all the time when things get rough. You're like, what? Who are you? you, you you're just like, next. Have you ever been through a storm? You want someone who's persevered through a storm who says, Jesus never fails and I can prove it through my life and through my life experience. That's what you want in a storm. In 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 7, Peter wrote this. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials or storms. That the genuineness of your faith be much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. True faith will always be tested, that it can be purified, refined, and glorified. Faith must be tested. This is how it's strengthened. This is how it's purified. If you have never suffered a deficit, you have untested faith. If you have never entertained a doubt, you have untested faith. You're saying, Cheryl, doubts are good for my faith? Yes! Doubt is one of the best things that could happen to your faith. It was when Thomas said, unless I see his hands and I touch him, I will not believe. What did Jesus do? He stood right there and said, here it is, Thomas. Feel me, touch me. And then he said, all right, Thomas, you're blessed because you've seen it, but more blessed are those who do not see and believe. Jesus didn't say you shouldn't doubt. Jesus can deal with our doubts. He can come and he can prove himself to us. But if you've never doubted, then your faith has never been tested. 
It's all right to have a doubt. You know, sometimes we're like, I doubt it. Shame on me. You know, we're all ready to beat ourselves up. No, God's good with that. He can deal with that. He can meet you right there and he can prove himself and prove his promises. Or sometimes we think, I doubt it. Now God's not going to come through and answer my prayer. Hogwash, whatever that means. I've never experienced that one myself. God's going to come through. God is going to come through. It's as if we are faithless. He remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. He is still God. Even when you doubt, he is still God. He is still moving. Even when you doubt, he's still going to do and get you to Rome. Even when you doubt, because he is God and his promise is his promise. His word is his word. It's all right. You might doubt sometimes, but God will speak to you. He will prove it to you. And you will lose that doubt. Because God will prove himself faithful. If you have never weathered a storm, your faith is untested. If you've never come through a storm, because it's through storms, it's through doubts, it's through trials, that faith becomes gold that it becomes strengthened and fortified and glorified and more precious than gold. It is when you hold on to the promises of God, when all the props are removed, that faith turns to gold. In Romans 4.20, we're told that Abraham was strengthened in faith. What happened? Every prop that Abraham could possibly help God to the promise God gave him was absolutely removed. Abraham's like, well, you know, Sarah's only 89. We still have a chance for a child. Then on her 90th birthday, he's like, well, maybe not. Also remember, this is the man that did give her away twice to harems. It was only when, you know, Abraham, he got too old. She was too old. It was only when the barrenness continued all those years. His age was prohibitive. Time was running out. That Abraham was strengthened in faith. How? We're told that he rehearsed the character of God. He said and believed that he who promised was able to perform it. He said, this has nothing to do with me and everything to do with who God is. He took himself out of the equation and just put God in the equation. God plus God equals miracle. God plus Cheryl, problem. God plus God, miracle. God plus God, impossibilities become possibilities. And he gave glory to God and thought about all that God had done. I believe that's why the Bible tells us to be thankful over and over again. Because there's nothing like looking at everything that God has already done to strengthen our faith. I was reading in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, in everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. I thought, okay, I know this is the will of God. And I was looking out today And the sky is such a beautiful blue today, isn't it? And my peach tree has blossoms and my nectarine tree has blossoms. Actually, the nectarine tree is Brian's. The peach tree is mine. They both have blossoms. My white roses, my cabbage roses are blooming. I've got a few red roses. The grass is so green. 
And I begin to just think of all the things that God has done. Every year, we have fruit on those trees. And we don't fertilize them. We are like the worst people. I think trees go, please, not that house. Don't plant me there. The only, you know, my lemon tree is super prolific. I think it because it's sour. Yeah, I love this place. Because, you know, lemons like dry weather. And we like to not water things. And works for us. George Mueller um, said this, and you can find it in Streams in the Desert on January 4th. You will never learn faith in comfortable surroundings. God gives us the promises in a quiet hour. God seals our covenants with great and gracious words. Then he steps back and waits to see how much we believe. Then he lets the tempter come. And the test seems to contradict all that he has spoken. It is then that faith wins its crown. That is the time to look up through the storm and among the trembling, frightened seamen cry, I believe God that it shall be even as it was told to me. Comfortable circumstances, seize candy in Disneyland will never strengthen our faith. Unless you go on the really scary rides. Faith is strengthened when all the props are removed and you are left with the promises of God alone. The woman who compiled Streams in the Desert, Letty Cowman, she was from a very affluent background. She married a man who was very wealthy. But as they um, turned to faith in Jesus Christ, they felt a call to Japan. So they decided to sell everything they had and give away all their money to the poor and to live only by what God gave them. So the church announced, you know, Letty and her husband, Charles, they're going to be going to Japan. Let's take up an offering for them. The whole church took up an offering. It amounted to 25 cents. Now, that wasn't enough to pay for anything going to Japan, maybe a snack on the way. And her husband turned to her and he said, oh, Letty, look at this, 25 cents and all the promises of God. They went to Japan, and before World War II, they were able to translate and get a gospel of Matthew to every single household in Japan before World War II, before Hiroshima, before any of the battles started. The gospel was given to every household in Japan through 25 cents and all the promises of God. It takes uncomfortable circumstances to forge muscles, stamina, and strength. It takes diet, which is the deprivation or the taking away of everything delicious. It takes exercise, which is the repetitive motions that get your heart racing. It's smaller storms and watching God's faithfulness. It is weight training. It is ever-increasing the amount of weight that you can lift and you can push and pull. Faith is not lost in storms. It is strengthened and fortified in storms. And finally, faith is felt in storms. There is nothing like a storm to bring to our senses the reality of faith. Faith has senses too, like your physical senses. But these faith sentences are not realized, utilized, until your physical senses fail you. 
And then the senses of faith come alive. We're told that Paul saw an angel of the Lord, verse 23. The invisible messenger and helper became visible in the storm. In the storms, we see what we cannot see in calm seas. We see God's divine protection and help. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Paul hadn't seen this angel before, but now in the storm, this angel that was encamped around him became visible. In 2 Kings 6, verse 13 through 17, we're told that the army of Syria had come into Dothan to arrest the prophet Elisha. And his servant was scared. It was a storm. But Elisha prayed, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And we're told that the servant's eyes were open. And he saw the invisible. He saw that the Syrian troops were surrounded by a greater army of flaming chariots. And then Elisha prayed. And the army of Syria was blinded, apprehended and taken to the king of Israel. It's in storms that the visible, the invisible becomes visible. We're also told that Paul heard the word of the Lord spoken audibly through an angel. In the storms, the promises of God are heard. Perhaps we're more sensitive or we're listening more intently or we're tuned in. After my father died, I remember um, being in bed an awakening to just one word. And, and it was this word, it was, like, it was like it was being shouted in the room. You know, I'm like, Brian, did you hear that? And he's like, no, but you do this to me before. And I went to my Bible and I began to read and I found that word. It was in, only in one of the chapters I was reading. It wasn't in anything else. And the scripture pertained to me like I couldn't believe And then I got a text from a a woman who prays for me. I just love this woman. I love anyone who prays for me, just for the record. And I looked, and she said to me, can you see, that's my cell phone that I'm looking at right there. She says to me in this text, and she said she's all thumbs. She doesn't like to text because she really can't text very well. And yet she sends me this incredible text. She said, today the Lord spoke to you a word. Stand on that word because God is going to fulfill that word to you. How did she know? It was such a God moment. You see, the inaudible becomes audible in the storm. That sense of faith. In the storms, our prayers are answered. Spiritual realities become more substantial than physical circumstances. Paul no doubt interceded for the entire ship and he was promised all would be saved, that not a hair of anyone on that ship would fall. All 276 on that ship would be saved. By what other means could God eternally save every person on board that ship? Before the storm, they were unwilling to listen, but now they are listening and following. It's in the storm that real faith is demonstrated Paul showed the ship what faith looked like. He showed him what confidence in the word of God looked like. He showed him what obedience to the word of the Lord 
look like. And they were all encouraged. It's in the storms that the word of God is proven, just as God said. As we read in chapter 27, yes, the ship ran aground. The cargo was lost. The ship was ruined, but not one prisoner was killed. Even though the soldiers wanted to kill all the prisoners, not one perished, even as the Lord said. Every passenger and every crew member made it safely to the shore. It is faith that makes the invisible visible, the unheard audible, and the unfelt sensed, and the unknown known. Faith is felt in the storm. There are some people who spend their lives trying to avoid the storms that will inevitably come in our lives. They're, they're like those, those men that were trying to escape the storm in the little dinghy, as if that would help. You know, if we get my, our own little boat, we'll be safe from this storm. No way. They would have perished. They would have most certainly lost their lives if a big ship couldn't make it through the storm. Certainly the little ship wouldn't. But there are always those who are trying to escape the storms. Some won't even get on board the ship. Others don't care about ever getting to Rome in the first place. I never wanted to go to Europe anyway. But it's only by faith that we will see the glory of God on earth. It's only by faith that we will be all that God intends us to be. It's only by faith that we will get to the place that God has for us. This faith is so valuable to God because it opens the heavens and it ushers in the promises of God. It's forged, it's fortified, and it's felt through storms. And here's the good news, bad news thing. God loves you so much. I'm just going to let the storms come. It's his love that sends the storm. It's not his disfavor. It's his love. Because he wants faith forged and fortified and felt. He wants you to know that you know that you know that he is for you. That he is greater than the storm that he will see you through, that he will stand by you, he will speak to you, he will hold you up. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, fear not, I am with you. This is what God wants to do. There's no need to fear the storm. This is the time for your faith to be tried and tested and turned to genuine golden faith. Faith is the only thing that I have to pass on to my children. They've taken all my money. I can give them credit card debt and faith that God will pay off that credit card debt. I can give them faith. One of my favorite things from my father is um, he and I were always the ones who did the dishes. We just, Thanksgiving dishes, Christmas dishes. He loved to work and so did I. So we'd just sit there and we'd scrub the dishes. He actually did the washing and I did the drying. And he said it was the dryer's duty to make sure that the washer, to cover for the washer. In other words, if he missed his spot, I wasn't supposed to tell him I was just supposed to wash it off and take care of it myself. (laughs) We had all these rules for washing. But he would tell me the stories of faith, of growing up with faith. 
He would tell me the stories of, of his mom saying, Jesus never fails when my grandpa had his nervous breakdown and was in catatonic condition for over a year. He would tell me the miracle of God supplying all their needs, this little struggling family, according to his riches and glory. He would tell me about his great-grandmother. He would tell me about his mother. He would tell me about his grandmother. He would tell me about my grandmother sitting on the rocking chair, singing and praying in the midst of storms. And that was my heritage. That's what I got. And that's what I want to pass on to my children. I don't want my children to see me dying in the storm, losing faith in the storm, because they're going to go through storms. And I want them to know that they can stand up in the midst of the storm and say, I believe God, that it will be just as it was told me. That's what I want to pass down and on and put into my children. I want contagious faith. I want faith that will save a generation. I want faith that not only believes that every life will be spared, but faith that will make the hardened semen come to faith. I want that faith that is proven, that is of greater value than gold. So I guess that means there's going to be storms. But I don't need to fear them because faith is forged, fortified, and felt in the storm. You want to go ahead and stand? Lord, we thank you. Lord, here we are. We are women, Lord, who want faith. And Lord, we understand that there's a cost. And some of us have already been through those storms. And some of us have more storms to go through. But Lord, we want to be like Paul. We want to be taking nourishment. We want to be believing. We want to be standing in the middle of it saying, God's promises are greater than the wind and the waves and all the props and all the stars and the sun. God is greater Lord, we want that kind of faith to pass on to the next generation. Lord, we pray that you would work in us, that you would forge, fortify, and fill our lives with a faith that is felt. In Jesus' name, amen.